Hi there, my name is Ryan Black, and I'm an editor at searchsoftwarequality.com. And welcome to the Test and Release Podcast, where we talk about a wide variety of software development and software testing topics. This week, we're joined by Tech Target senior news writer, Beth Parasaw, and news director, Chris Kanarakis. Chris and Beth were kind enough to join us for a wide-ranging discussion on this year's top news stories and emerging trends. For example, we talked about how remote work has brought out and accentuated some less practiced aspects of DevOps. We also talked about how big cloud vendors are racing to make their presence known in low-code spaces, some consolidation among CI-CD tool vendors, how vendors like Atlassian are trying to kickstart a shift from on-premises to cloud, and how IT enterprises continue to deal with the tension that exists when, when you use open source code. I won't waste any more of your time. Now for our discussion with Chris and Beth. Welcome, Chris and Beth. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Test and Release. And also special shout out to uh, Meredith for joining us for the first time. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Let's get right to it. So uh, Beth, one of the topics you've wrote about this year, and I, I don't think this will be a surprise to people, is kind of like the switch to remote work among uh, DevOps teams or any IT organizations in general. So could you talk about kind of like what the switch to remote work and the impl implications unique to DevOps have been and what you've observed in your coverage? So what I've seen about the, the switch to remote work isn't so much its effect on DevOps as DevOps effect on it. Um, it seems like the further along companies were in their digital transformation, including DevOps, continuous delivery, cross-functional collaboration, um, small iterative changes, documenting changes, measuring results, the better off they were uh, when everyone had to go remote. Uh, in fact, um, it kind of enforced some DevOps best practices that maybe hadn't been closely followed before. Um, the idea, you know, ultimately with Agile and DevOps is that you document and you measure your work. Um, but, you know, when people were in person, they could sort of stop in the hallway or go over to somebody's desk and they could have these kind of side conversations. So there was still a lot of like tribal knowledge that was happening that wasn't going to fly with remote work. So in a way, it, it also made some people, um, you know, adhere more to DevOps best practices. And, you know, the, the thing that's really hard is that, you know, if you hadn't started your digital transformation, you hadn't moved to cloud, you hadn't, you know, put together a centralized CI/CD pipeline for app releases, you know, it's, and, you know, then the pandemic is not only that much harder, but the pandemic makes it that much harder to move to those things to try and survive. Um, but um, in the story that I wrote about this, there, there were some interesting presentations by SRE experts about how SRE approaches and DevOps approaches of iterative uh, improvement um, could be applied to that, you know, kind of focus on one incremental improvement at a time to try and get there because just about anything is better than the old way of doing things while everyone is remote. Beth, when you say SRE, you mean site reliability engineers? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a term that, you know, is becoming more popular. Um, there's still like DevOps disagreement about what it actually means, but generally 
the idea of DevOps is that developers operate their own applications and troubleshoot them. So that leaves IT ops people to mostly become either some call themselves SREs, others call themselves platform engineers. They kind of create the um, infrastructure where developers deploy their apps, support it, try to make it more reliable. Um, and if there are kind of systemic issues with that platform, um, they, they troubleshoot that. To pivot in a, into a slightly different topic, uh, I also wanted to pick both of your brains about low-code because, you know, low-code continues to be a, a trending topic this year. Uh, I recall earlier in the year, Google ventured into low-code by, I believe they bought app sheets in uh, January. And I think uh, the stated reasoning in the reporting there was to bolster up their cloud offering. And so this might be a good question you have to get Chris's insight on, but I'm curious in terms of kind of like the low-code news you've seen throughout the year, is, is that a phenomenon you've seen reoccur where, you know, cloud vendors kind of like pair their low-code and cloud offerings in tandem? Or if that's not the case, I'd be curious what, else, what other sort of observations regarding low-code you've both seen. You know, what's telling about the Google app sheet acquisition was that um, they already had something called AppMaker and they killed it after they bought AppSheet because AppMaker was a flop. It came out in 2016 and no one used it. Um, and the low-code idea has been around for decades, maybe three decades. Um, look at Microsoft Visual Basic, his type of sort of lower code environment. It's still around and people have written thousands and thousands, if not millions of corporate applications with it over the years that are still running companies that we're in today. Um, in terms of the cloud vendors, yeah, then AWS came out with Honeycode in the middle of the year and used a spreadsheet and, um, type of interface to provide a low code editor. Um, I guess the bottom line is that this stuff has been swirling around for decades. Um, there are some bigger independent vendors like Mendix that are making real money, uh, but they come out of BPM, which is a much more complicated, you know, previous generation type of technology. And no one's really cracked the code to, you know, for, to make a terrible pun. I, I think a lot of the stuff we've seen from the big cloud vendors is just to get a prototype type product out there so they, they can say, we have low code, you know, we have a flag in the ground. Um, if it sounds like I'm skeptical, of, yeah, I am. I just don't <clears throat> see it as something that sustainable long-term. If you create, all these things are walled gardens, you know, they, uh, you create a bunch of really stuff that isn't, it's not like a traditional enterprise application, which written in common languages and written in an IDE and that can be updated by other people after they leave the company and can be ported to different you know, types of hardware, and especially with the cloud vendors, it's all on their own sites. It's very locked in. Uh, I guess I'd say there's lots of hype, but um, true success has eluded this space for decades. So I don't know. We'll see. Next year, what could be interesting. Chris, can I ask what you expect next year to bring with low code? Will it be more of these large vendors acquiring kind of low code IP, or do you see? Um, vendors developing low-code products in-house. Will the players have a have a move into low-code? I think you'll see both. But what I would like to see more is um, examples of real-world customer success, not just hey, um, you know, my my power user, Excel user, can write some widget, you know, with this thing. But 
how did it translate to business value and for the company? How did it make the company money? How did it help a company enter a new market? How did it help a company optimize its workforce? Anything like that. I want to see that on, on the trade shows next year from these big vendors, customers on stage really telling their story. Then I'll be less skeptical. If we can even have trade shows, that is. Yeah. <laughs> um, I will piggyback sort of on that idea of hype and um, vendor changes and actual users to talk about a trend that I think is sort of more into the mainstream, but has certainly gone through the same kind of struggles, which is CICD tools. Um, Beth, I know you've written countless articles about the various uh, upgrades, acquisitions, capabilities, and integrations between all of the different tools that you would use for a DevOps or CICD pipeline. Was there anything that stood out to you in 2020, anything that you see kind of continuing into 2021? I think the major trend was unsurprising, but um, pretty consistent, which is that um, CICD pipelines have gone from being these bespoke kind of artisan, you know, creations cobbled together from raw open source code by ninjas and rock stars to something that mainstream enterprises want to use, but don't want to build from scratch. Um, they want support, they want the integration, they don't want to, you know, be, you know, they're not in the business of building CICD pipelines, they're in the business of delivering whatever their business logic is in their apps. So you're starting to see vendors, especially big incumbent IT vendors like Red Hat, uh, CloudBees, which is the commercial um, backer of Jenkins, um, which is still a, you know, widely used um, tool in that space, um, Atlassian, um, you know, kind of putting things together that are more end-to-end -end and in, um, to use a loathsome marketing term, but, um, and uh, Red Hat has also um, begun to integrate CICD more deeply, um, including event-driven CICD with OpenShift. So they're trying to connect the CICD pipeline with that platform that developers are uh, deploying to and SREs or platform engineers are supporting. Um, so when you see things like CICD go into this pre-built packaged um, set of products, you know that it's going mainstream, basically. You know, this isn't a bleeding edge thing anymore where, you know, you have to be, you know, an OG, <laughs> open source um, programmer to put one together. Um, so, you know, I mean, it's also not the most thrilling and exciting trend, but it just, you know, there's maturity. I've seen it personally, having been on the, the IT beat since 2016, that's overlapped pretty nicely with the mainstreaming of things like DevOps and CICD. So when I started, there was a lot of talk about what are the best tools to put together and how do you put them together? And now there's more talk about pragmatically, you know, which of your incumbent vendors are you going to buy this whole package from and, um, and why? And um, it's competitively, there's consolidation in the industry as well um, and attrition or there will be um, because, you know, ultimately there's, there's, um, 
a pretty heated battle between vendors that had been um, the rulers of different domains. And now everything is so cross domain that everybody's trying to do everything for everyone. And users end up having to sort of pick who their main supplier um, of DevOps software is going to be. And this sounds like um, this consolidation might be helpful if you are in the early stages of CICD and you're kind of looking at more comprehensive pipeline packages. A lot of our uh, readers and listeners, I think, have some stage of CICD maturity and might already have 10 to 15 tools, maybe even different pipelines across different parts of their companies. So they might be facing a more challenging decision to make about whether to, like you say, bet on, bet on one company or continue stringing together these, these pipelines that they've built. Well, best of breed versus buy is a time-honored debate. Um, and the what's in fashion, the pendulum swings back and forth. Um, one thing I, that I think is good about this current uh, wave of change in IT is that most of it at heart is built on um, open source. So at least theoretically, um, the core code of something like say Kubernetes or Jenkins um, or even observability tools like Prometheus and Grafana doesn't belong to your vendor. It's not quite the level of lock-in people used to have with proprietary software vendors um, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, but nobody really wants to be managing 10 to 15 tools at the end of the day. And at the end of the day, most companies are really not in the business of putting together a CICD platform. They want to ship their code faster. That's what this is about. Um, and they want to link their business more tightly with what their tech folks are doing. Um, you know, and so those are the real goals that people are starting to focus on with CICD more as a means to an end. So uh, to kind of stay along that same kind of you know, train of thought with, you know, in terms of tooling options available to, develop, to developers and kind of like what's shifted in the past year or so. Uh, Chris, can, can you just give us a, a, a brief overview of essentially uh, on-premises tools versus cloud-side tools? Yeah, so the big thing there um, in 2020 and really starting late 2019 and on, we saw a shift toward cloud-based code editors that coming from the big vendors, your, your big names like Google and Microsoft. And they, at build 2019, um, late 2019, they demoed a few of these newer things. And you know that something's resonating with a developer crowd when people like stand up and cheer basically. And I wouldn't say they were throwing confetti, but people were psyched at what they saw. You, you can do stuff like pair programming in real time, you know, in the cloud with another developer. Um, and in, in this age of 2020, now to be able to do that remotely is, is really huge. Um, Google's also really been leading the way with Google Cloud. A lot of extensions to existing IDEs, Visual Studio, um, many others. So they're trying to keep one foot in what remains, you know, probably 80% of programming is done on on-premise workstation uh, locally, but trying to bring more functionality into the cloud where all that work is done. So 
I think that will be pretty hot in 2021. I think a lot of people have kicked the tires on these newer editors, and we're going to see a lot more of that in 2021. Thank you, Chris. Uh, and you, of course, brought up a number of vendors like Google and Microsoft. But if my understanding is correct, uh, Atlassian is uh, another vendor which kind of exemplifies this tension between um, on-premises and cloud. And uh, Beth, uh, you've written about the Atlassian affair, but I was wondering, could, could you talk a bit? A, bit about them and what's uh, what's happening with them sure um <clears throat> so you know just as a backdrop um you know tying it back to the pandemic and remote work like chris touched on um you know companies that uh were still relying on vpn access to on-premises data centers in the pandemic also struggled much more um, than companies that had already switched to cloud-based and SaaS services because all people need when they work at home if you're using a cloud-based software uh, product is their internet connection. And ideally some type of authentication or um, user identity and access management system, um, you know, that again, if you were far along on your cloud and digital transformation transition, you would have in place already. Um, and so that also kind of separated um, the haves from the have-nots as the pandemic um, came down. Um, and on the other hand, there are some very large uh, enterprise organizations um, that still have security requirements, not that they cannot put certain applications or data in the cloud. Um, you know, cloud has become so much more mainstream, it's not even noteworthy to say it's mainstream anymore. I mean, you know, big businesses, including banks, do trust cloud infrastructure and application services. Amazon even has GovCloud that the CIA uses and DOD. I mean, you know, it is doable, but there are some, especially financial institutions that, you know, just do not want to move certain apps to the cloud. So that's where people start to talk about hybrid cloud and, you know, you have a mix of on-premises and cloud-based resources. <clears throat> and, um, you know, Atlassian, it's interesting because they started um, as an on-premises licensed software vendor. Um, and initially their cloud offerings were not very strong in terms of their reliability. Um, but a couple years ago, they migrated their backend to AWS instead of their own self-managed data centers and started um, offering versions of their products on the cloud. And gradually those versions started to become their clear preference in terms of what they developed features for first, um, what they shipped first, you know, what, what they touted the most, um, and, you know, they started to try to kind of gently push and incentivize um, users to switch from their on-premises products to cloud versions. Things like discounts and migration help and free migration assessment tools and, and that kind of thing. Um, and people could sort of see what was coming earlier this year, but there was still some surprise and consternation um when they ultimately um went from the carrot so to speak to the stick um in uh late october and discontinued their server line which was kind of their entry level um licensed for on-premises products and um drastically hiked the licensing for data center um, versions of their products, which were the, you know, the fully featured enterprise versions of their software. Um, and uh, as much as, as said that, 
you know, they're, they're cloud first now and that's how it's going to be. Um, they handled that transition as carefully as I think anybody could, um, you know, and they were very responsive to customers' concerns. Um, but, and at the end of the day, companies that are large enough uh, with enough highly regulated data to deal with, like banks, are going to pay what it takes to buy those data center licenses. Um, but it was the first time I've seen a company on my beat really starkly enforce that transition. Um, maybe because a lot of them kind of didn't start from on-premises in the first place, but, um, you know, I think, I think it's very clear that, um, people with on-premises investments are in the minority, um, as apps modernize, as digital, digital transformation happens. And, um, most of the major concerns about cloud security and reliability, um, have, have been put to rest for most mainstream enterprise companies. I think we can say we're finally there. Hey Beth, um, in the SaaS, you know, in the run of the SaaS in the era, the, the pitch was always that it's better than on-prem because we can update you four times a year. We'll manage everything, obviously, but we'll get rapid iteration on the software. Um, not just tax and regulatory updates, but you know, we'll, we'll cascade a stream of features instead of like you having to install a new version once a year, once every two years. Is that the same case in stuff like Atlassian and Jira, do people want that rapid iteration that the cloud can give? Well, so they also um, overhauled Jira Service Desk recently in that in that manner. Um, and that you have to be careful um, because there are some companies that have a big appetite for change, but um, there are others that are going to freak out if you shift the ground under them too often and too rapidly and too drastically. Um, so Atlassian, at least with the Jira service desk, it's now um, Jira service management. Um, when they made that transition, they automatically gave everyone the new features, but they didn't take any of the existing ones away yet. Um, and so I think um, that's an appeal to some companies, but when you're selling to mainstream enterprises, that can't, that's not going to apply to everybody. To pivot to something else that uh, I think actually might be a, a source of tension for some IT enterprises, uh, Beth, something, something else you've wrote, uh, wrote about this year is uh, companies' dealings and sometimes dealings with open source contributions. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I use the word fraught because I, I think uh, descriptions for your articles is about uh, conservative legal departments, uh, you know, Issues with uh, you're breaking up. Like I said, open source contributions. But yeah, not not to make it too much of a leading question. But could you lay out essentially the landscape of companies' dealings with you know open source contributions and kind of like what the current nature is? Sure. Open source is it's gone from a fringe thing to mainstream to just a requirement now. I mean, um, you know, I think the appeal initially was, hey, it's free. But as they say in open source circles, there's free as in beer and there's free as in a puppy. Um, and open source is definitely free as in a puppy. I mean, you know, you get the thing for free maybe, but you got to take care of it and you got to raise it and you've got to train it. And you, you know, you need someplace to turn for support. 
Um, and, you know, it's not just as simple as, hey, install this license, it's free. Um, and so um, another one of the appeals for open source software is that you can modify it as you need to. Um, but not only does that take skills, it also takes a new approach to corporate IP. And what do we own? What is uh, our value add as a business? What's proprietary to us that we need to keep in house? And what can we contribute back to the community? And, um, you know, that kind of, that butts up against corporate culture first. You know, so you have developers and everybody wants to hire, you know, WizKid developers. But the thing is, WizKid developers tend to be pretty staunch advocates for openness and open source um, in what they're creating. And if you want to recruit the top developers in the world, you're going to have to let them use open source uh, software and create it from within your company. Um, and so a, a company's open source reputation is most valuable to it as a recruiting tool um, for IT people in the midst of a skill shortage. So, um, you know, companies now have to face this issue. Um, and there are still some things that are not settled, um, you know, about, um, there's no legal precedent really. I mean, um, Google versus Oracle um, in terms of APIs and Java is the closest thing to a possible coming precedent, but even that might not necessarily apply in all cases. And it's kind of uncharted territory from a legal standpoint. Um, and, you know, it's a, also a pretty widespread issue where you have upper management and people like risk management and legal teams that are not deeply technical versus developers that are deeply technical, but not well-versed legal experts. And you have to bring those two sides together you know, and it's not just about collaboration between different IT factions. It's also about integrating the different functions of the business around what's being done technically. So that's a big challenge for people culturally. You know, I mean, people, people thought making devs and, and ops work together was hard. I mean, try putting a corporate lawyer in a room with, a, with an open source software developer. I mean, they're speaking different languages. Um, and then, um, the other thing that um, becomes its own whole rabbit hole is licensing. Um, and, uh, you know, companies like, for example, Bloomberg, um, who's um, in the rare position of having a, an exec in the position of, okay, managing what do we license, how do we license open source things um, that we create within our company. And making that kind of coordinated decision about, you know, what's, what's kept in-house and what's not. And working with these open source foundations, um, you know, there's just certain things that, um, you know, were practices around legal contracts, documents, um, copyright uh, agreements has not caught up to modern software. Um, and, um, you know, basically companies are starting to take an interest in being the owners of the code for purposes of open sourcing it instead of the original the uh, individual developer um, and in part that ties back to that uh, recruiting tool um, ties back to visibility they want to be seen as good corporate citizens and frankly they don't want this developer's work to belong to their employee they want it to belong to their company if it's done using company resources at time so 
that's its own whole um, issue. Um, for example, Kevin Fleming, who's the person I talked with at Bloomberg, um, you know, had to work with um, multiple software companies to have Bloomberg itself, the corporate entity, be the copyright owner for purposes of open sourcing some code um, just late last year, early this year. And those, those companies had never actually done that process that way before. Um, so it's still kind of a frontier in all this, but it's going to start coming up for more and more companies because you just have to use and contribute to open source. Um, and it's, it's also just sort of reflects the market maturity where, okay, we will use this stuff. Okay. Now we're getting really good at using this stuff, except there's this one thing we need it to do that it doesn't. So, okay, we'll make that to, well, we really need to share this with the community because we got all this stuff based on other people's work and donation to the community. And if we want to be part of this whole movement, you know, we really need to give back or else you get, you get a bad reputation and then it becomes harder for you to get community support around using this software. Um, but then it's, it sort of runs into all of these legal questions that are, you know, in some cases centuries old uh, that still need to be updated. Definitely sounds like an area in which, uh, I mean, you brought up uh, uh, DevOps, you know, in terms of bringing developers and operations together. And of course, I, the tact we always take with talking about develop with you know DevOps is finding how to collaborate. But it almost sounds like with uh, the dynamics you're describing, it's there might be concessions on one side or the other, as opposed to there being collaboration. In some cases. Yeah. Well, this also uh, reminds me that um, you know people in technical fields, whether they're DevOps engineers or developers or QA professionals. It's never a bad idea to brush up on soft skills to be able to communicate, uh, work with people from outside of their department. Uh, There's just no way around it. It's you just can't not deal with people anymore. Mm -hmm. Are you doing technical work? You've got to collaborate with your security and your ops guy as a developer, and you know vice versa. Or it's it's you know communicating with everybody from the upper management of your business to the legal and and risk folks. I mean. Even the systems that people are using are converging. You know, for for example, there's a there's a software category called uh, enterprise service management that's emerging. Different companies like ServiceNow um, and Atlassian actually is getting more into this field. They're starting to um, expand their products like Jira Service Desk to uh, accommodate legal and HR teams. So you know, and they have actually low code or no code interfaces for those constituencies into products like Jira Service Desk so they can offer things like, you know, corporate, corporate internet, you know, intranet, excuse me, um, types of services. Um, you know, so it's not just about IT help desk anymore. You know, I need, I need to uh, onboard or decommission a new employee, not just in terms of getting their laptop set up, but in terms of, you know, their status in our HR system. And you're going to use something like Jira for that. Um, and ultimately, the initial, it's easy to forget this in all the technical weeds, but the initial goal of Agile and DevOps was to improve business, was to deliver business logic faster and more competently as the world becomes ruled by software. You know, every company now at least needs a mobile app and a website. And so 
every company now has to have some amount of software delivery of whatever it is their product is. And that means that you can't, you, you no longer have this separation between, you know, the technical propeller heads down in the dungeon, you know, doing whatever alchemy it is they do and the business people out front, you know, doing what it is they do. I mean, you, you really have to bring those things together. It's not just a nice to have, it's not just an ideal. It's necessary if you want to survive in the 21st century. Beth, Chris, I want to thank you both again for joining us uh, and also for all the news coverage in which uh, you wrote and very much informed this conversation, uh, your news coverage from the past year. Um, can, you tell us, uh, can you each of us tell us where can people can find uh, your stories uh, and your coverage? Sure. You can find, uh, yeah, you can find them on searchcloudcomputing.com and uh, search at architecture.com and sometimes on uh, searchcio.com, depending on how high level it is. You can find most of my writing on searchitoperations.com and there's a central tech target news page you can go to for all our news across our sites, as well as searchsoftwarequality.com. Thank you again to Chris and Beth for joining us for this episode. Be sure to check out both of their respective contributor pages if you want to read more of their coverage. And also, if you want to stay up to date on application development news and topics, be sure to follow us on Twitter at TTFDev. <laughs>